Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to share your word. We thank you for all that will hear this message and that you will bless this and that you will guide and lead us in what you would have us to hear in, in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi 1, he, he criti God criticized the people. And in Malachi 2, he's going to discipline the priests, the leaders. It starts out in verse 1, And now, O you priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I, corrupt, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn, away, turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at the mouth, for he is the messenger of the law of hosts. So we'll stop there because he gets into the word but, and we're going to look at what, where he's at. So first he's talking to the priest. And the priest were the leaders of the people. They were to teach people the word of God. They were to give the sacrifices. And they were the religious leaders. And God has a, a breach of contract with them that he's upset with. Not only with just the people, but now with the priest. And it says, if you will not hear and will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. He says, hear, if you won't hear, and hear, hear, it means to obey. He goes, you're not even going to listen and obey. You're not laying it to heart. And when the Old Testament uses the word heart, it generally means our innermost being, who we really are, not just who we show people, but who we are at the core of our being. He says, you're not even putting it into the core of your being to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. The war, the, the war, this is that title of the warrior God. He's the God with an army behind him that demands obedience. And he says, you're not even willing to give glory to my name. And here they were, the priests. They were supposed to give the offerings. They were to lift him up. They were to give the Aaronic blessing to the people that may God's face shine upon you and all that, all of that stuff. They were supposed to bless the people and lift up God. And when David set up the, the Levites, he, he set it up that they would actually have sing, singers in the temple and there would be constant praise and music, constant praise of, of activity, constant teaching going on in the, in the temple. And here the priests are not doing this. And as we said, the time period on this is believed to be the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the, when the temple's supposed to be rebuilt and the priests aren't pushing for it to be rebuilt. They don't have any place to minister because there is no temple. And God is saying, you all are supposed to be the example and you're not putting me forward. You're not lifting me up. He says, I will eventually send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings Yea, I have cursed them already. And God is saying, I'm going to curse you, but by the way, I've already started this. And we've talked many times how God starts with our correction with a light touch. 
He gives us just maybe messages from the, from the teachers or the pulpits and says, you need to correct your life. Our reading in the Bible, you need to correct your life. And if we don't listen, then he starts touching our life to say, okay, let's start taking away. <laughs> You're not paying attention? I'm going to start taking away. I'm going to take away your blessings. I'm going to keep taking them away. Until he gets to the point if we don't repent and we're really drawn, he could even take our life away and say, it's time to come home because your testimony is so bad. And here he's telling the, the priest, you know, by the way, I'm taking away your blessings and I already have. It's pretty sad that they, he has to tell them that he's already taken away their blessings because their heart is so cold that they don't even recognize that they've already started to lose blessings. And this is again because he says, you do not lay it to heart. You're not paying attention to me. You're not, you're not listening to me. And I've, and I've shared, you know, we can get to the place where we think God's blessings are our normal life and God's saying, no, let me show you what normal is. And if we're not counting our blessings and remembering that every blessing of God is a blessing, then God will say, let me just take them away from you for a little while and show you that you were being blessed. And here he's saying, you guys are so blind, you don't even know that your blessings are being removed. Verse 3 says, behold... I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung on your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. This is pretty graphic. I'm going to put feces on you because you're so, you know, you're going to have, you know, a contemptible appearance. You're going to be dirty. You're going to be polluted. And this is a pretty serious thing, especially with, you know, that he says you know, it's going to be on you, on your appearance, your face, and on your solemn feast. Basically, he's saying everything about you is abhorrent. It's detestable. I don't want to see you because you look so filthy to me, and I don't even want your feasts because they are filthy to me. You're not honoring me. And this is the same thing Paul said to the Corinthian church. He goes, your love feast, your, your communions are so corrupt. Everybody, everybody's bringing their own food, and one person has everything and getting drunk, and another has nothing. He goes, you're, you're making God's house contemptible. And this is what he's saying. Even your feasts, <laughs> you know, your, your autumn feast and your spring feast that are celebrating me supposedly are contemptible. And this is something that is very serious. And this shows also how we sometimes get just do the automatic thing. It's Sunday morning. I got to go to church. I don't know if I'm going to worship God, but I got to go to church. And God doesn't want us coming to church if all we're doing is filling a seat and not ready to worship him. And by worship, I mean listening to the sermon, participating in the music, all that goes around with worship. He's saying, I want you there with the right attitude. Because you could come to church and not hear a word that's being said. And I've heard Greg Glory say the best place to get a hard heart toward God is in church. You hear it so often, you just get familiar with it, and you, very, you eventually aren't hearing what's being said. You're not hearing any challenge from God. You're just... Physically there, but mentally someplace else. And here he's saying, all of this stuff, you're physically here, you're physically doing what I'm telling you to do, but your heart is not there. This is the same accusation Jesus is going to have for the scribes and Pharisees. You do the right things and, and, and say the right things, but your heart is not with me. And that's when he told the people, do what the Pharisees do, but don't be like the Pharisees. Because he's going, the Pharisees are doing the right things. They're going, they're giving their offerings, they're giving their, their tithes and, and money. They're, they're doing everything, but they're doing it with the wrong heart. 
And God really does want our entire heart. And for him, it's more our heart attitude. I may make a lot of mistakes, but if my heart is right, I'm trying to serve God. He says, I'd rather have you making those mistakes than the person who's living a perfect life as far as the scriptures, but whose heart is not there. And this is why he uses people that make no sense sometimes. He takes the weakest person in the church and gives them a job to do and says, here, I want you to evangelize. And they do a good job because it's God working in them. They're willing to let him work. And here God is saying, I I don't want any of it. You're going to be taken away. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you and that my covenant might be with you, Levi, says the Lord of hosts. This is a very interesting statement because the covenant was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob basically passed it to his favorite son, Joseph, even though there wasn't a long official changing over it. But here God says, I made my covenant with Levi. And I believe this is because Moses honored him. And Moses was of the children of Levi. So God basically says, okay, Jacob put it on Joseph and blessed him and his children. But I, God, have chosen Levi with the tribe of Moses. And I believe from this point for the next couple of verses, he's talking about Moses more than anything else. Because we know Aaron didn't walk with, with integrity. He, made, he makes the golden idol, and he does a lot of things that aren't correct. Uh, so I believe he's talking about Moses at this point. And I think it's also a picture of Jesus. But he, Jesus was never of the tribe of Levi. And if we're going to look and say, who's of the tribe of Levi that he's talking about, I believe it's Moses. And I'm not going to hold that real strong, but I do believe it's Moses that he's talking about it here. Because he says in verse 5, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. And this was a picture of Moses. He gave Moses the, the life, which means to quicken and give spiritual life, and he gave him peace. And we've talked about peace. It's the word shalom, much more than just peace that we think of, much more than national tranquility or anything. It is everything about your life being at peace. And it's a very powerful word when you, when you think about this. It's my national tranquility, my, my peace with God, my peace with fellow men, and the joy and everything that comes along with that kind of peace. And this was given to a, uh, Moses, and it says, I gave it to him because he feared me and was afraid before my name. And we see this respect that Moses always had for God. Even though he was very bold with God and kind of contra- controversial with God, you know, he would, he would go after God and challenge him and say, God, you know, and we've talked about in, in the first five books well, how they had this little game that seemed to be going with them. God would say, they're your people. And Moses would go, no, they're your people. I don't want them. And, you know, and it almost appears with a game when you, you see this kind of canter back and forth between them. And it's kind of fun to watch. You know, somebody who just is at such peace with God, and, you know, he holds God in great respect, but he can also have that, that fun with him. And it's kind of, you see it sometimes with a parent and a child when they develop the friendship. The child knows that the parent's in charge, but you get to that place where you can just kind of bounce things off of them. You know, you can kind of tease them a little bit and with a respectful attitude. And you see that with, with him, you know, God keeps saying, you know, those, these are your people. I don't want anything to do with them. No, goes, no, no, oh no, they're not my people. I can't handle them. They're your people. But he always had that fear of God. And at that time when he asked, God, I want to see you face to face. And God says, you can't see me in my face yet, but you can see the backside. 
And God declares his name and talks about him being righteousness and holiness. And I love that in Deuteronomy where he gives him his name. And he has this great relationship with him. Verse 6, the law that was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many from their iniquity. And this is what Moses did. And this is also why, this is where I begin to see a picture of Jesus. Jesus comes and he gives the truth. He doesn't, and Jesus is the only one in whom no iniquity was found. So I think we're seeing Moses being the picture of Jesus and also a little bit of a prophecy of Jesus coming that, that he's going to come and he's going to turn the people to God and be able to reject. Hi. All right, verse seven. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of God of hosts. This is the way that priests and leaders, pastors are supposed to be. They're supposed to speak the truth. They're supposed to keep or guard knowledge. They should seek after the law because they're the messengers. And God is saying, these priests are supposed to be teaching you. They're supposed to be giving honor to me, raising people up. And he says, and they're not. They haven't been doing this. And this is what he's saying. They, st- they haven't, aren't doing this. This is what they're supposed to do. And this is why it's sad when a pastor starts not treating his church the way they're supposed to, not getting into the word, not, not studying. And unfortunately, there are many pastors in many churches that don't spend a lot of time trying to prepare for their, their, their flock. And they're not being good pastors. They're not ministering to people. They're not feeding them. Uh, really sad that you can go online and you can find pre, pre-made sermons for the year, two years, five year rotation and you never have to study according to them. Just preach these messages for the next five years and you'll be, you'll be all set. And I just can't see how any pastor could do that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. That is becoming very lazy and not, not wanting to really feed your, your own flock. And uh, so verse eight goes, but we are departed out of the, but you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, of Levi says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but you have been partial in the law. Have we not all one father? Has not, has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So here he's going, the, the but. Something's changing here, and he's now given their accusation. He says, you've departed out of the way. You have turned away from the teaching that you're supposed to teach. And we're seeing this in a lot of different churches and denominations where we've got churches and denominations and pastors who won't call sin a sin. They won't, they won't preach God's word at all. So in some cases, you've got some churches that they might read a verse in the Bible, but the, the message you get has nothing to do with the verse that they're talking about and may not even have anything to do with the Bible in general. And God is telling the priest, you have left. You have left. You've, you've left my way. You have caused many to stumble. And again, if you're not going to preach God's word, you're allowing people to stumble in darkness. They're, they get to do what they think is right. And how many people do we hear in this day and age that say, well, God just loves everybody. Well, he does love everybody, but he has a standard in place that says, you've got to be perfect. And because we can't be perfect, we need Jesus Christ. 
And a lot of people don't like that message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to him except through him. And a lot of people don't like that message because it's very narrow. It's very confining. But it's God's message, and we've got to preach it. And I've, I've talked to different people who are even supposedly Christians that say, well, I think somebody who's a really good Muslim or Buddhist or, or Hindu, they're going to go to heaven. No, they're not going to heaven. They're going to go to hell because they aren't worshiping the one true God. And they can worship very sincerely the, the moon god of Allah, one of the many gods of Hinduism, the, the god of knowledge of Buddhism, and go to hell no matter how sincere they are. And this is, you can have sincerely good people. There are going to be a lot of good people in hell because they don't know Jesus. And because they don't know Jesus, God doesn't see them as perfect and he sends them to hell. And this is the thing that goes down. When we don't teach his word, people will stumble at the law and the truth. They'll go, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It doesn't get us saved, but it does give us the testimony that we need to be for people. And it says, you have corrupted the covenant of the Levites. You know, they were supposed to teach. They were supposed to lift up. They were supposed to honor. And they've been corrupted. Therefore, this is what God's going to say because of this. He says, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people. Contemptible is that whole desire, that whole picture of somebody who is totally corrupt and spoiled. He's made the priest look terrible. And this has been true all through the different test, Old Testament periods and through different times of being in the, church, in the Christian church where many pastors have looked contemptible because they just would not live according to the way the church says they li should live. Uh, I think about the story of Robin Hood with his friar Tuck, now, who was a glutton and, a, and, a, and as much of a drunkard as any of the other guys, you know, and he was supposed to be the church man, but you never read anything in those stories of him chastising them for anything. He's completely on their side, he's completely worldly, he's contemptible, he's base, he's common, and this is what God says about his priest. They're contemptible, they're base. They're not challenging the world to come to a higher standard. They're not teaching a higher standard to people. They're just every day, teach people, do what you're doing. And we see this in many places. And sometimes on the radio and the TV, this is the kind of message we hear. You're okay, just, just be happy. <laughs> and God is saying, no, you're, that message is going to send them to hell. And they're going to have quite an accountability if they're saved at all. They're going to have quite an accountability before God when, when hundreds and thousands and possibly millions have gone to hell because they would not hold up God's standard. And God is saying, this is what my people, my priests have done. And they have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. They have been just speaking what they want to speak, maybe even having it bought. And this has been a problem in the church for years and years that some... Some pastors and priests have been bought. And we saw that in England during the time. You know, King James couldn't buy the church, so he started his own church that he could control. In France, we had the same thing happen over the years. They, the kings couldn't really control it, so they would buy, the, buy off the, the local abbot, the local uh, cardinal or whatever. And if they couldn't, they got him sent away and brought somebody they, and they could control. And this has happened over the time in the Christian church as well as we see God saying, you're buying the truth. You're buying 
the, my word. You're buying the, the approval. And he says, then I love this. This is kind of interesting. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? This is going back and dealing with the brotherhood of all humanity. And this is something the Jews do not usually think of God being their father. Okay, it's a real Christian term, but it is in the Old Testament that he is their father. And here's one of those prime verses. God is the father. He's the one that created Adam and Eve. He is the one that put them in place. And we all are related to Adam and Eve. We're all related to Noah and his wife. And this is why there should not be any partiality. This is why there should not be any racism with Christians. Because we are all humans. Doesn't matter the color of our skin or the nation that we grew up in or anything. We're all humans and should realize that that makes us family. No matter what, and this is one of the reasons I've never really fully understood this whole idea of racism, being disliking somebody because of the color of their skin. God says we're just human. Paul later on will tell us that we're one blood, which we are. We all have the same blood flowing through us, Adam and Eve. And so we need to respect, and here he's challenging him. Why do we deal treacherously, deceitfully, faithfully? You know, why do we deceive, you know, deal treacherously with every man against his brother, profaning the covenant of our fathers. God says they're equal. And remember, we've always talked about this. In the New Testament, they say the mystery of Christ was that Gentiles would become in fellowship with God. But all through the Old Testament, we find these little statements that God has always wanted the Gentiles to worship him. The Jews kept pushing it off and not accepting it, but God keeps putting it in. And in the first five books, he says, these sacrifices are for all people, not just you Jews, but for all people and all nations that want to come in can come in and give these offerings. And the Jews wrapped it around saying, well, they can come, but they have to become Jews. And all through here, we're seeing God saying, I want all. I'm not just after you Jews. I want you are my special people. You are, you, are my, you are the one that I've called, but I want the world because they're all mine. I'm the father of them all. Now, when the Jews would read this, they would probably read it as God just wanting the Jews and kind of leave out the rest of them that, and that all, and they would say, not, no, it's not, he's not all of people's followers. He's just God, our, the Jews' father. But he's really being saying, God is the creator and he is the father of everything and everybody. Verse 11 says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacle of Jacob and, and him that offers an offering unto the Lord of hosts. Judah. This specifically is referring to the kings because the kings came from the tribe of Judah. And it says Judah has dealt treacherously. They have been dealt deceitfully and, and faithlessly with God. And they are and an abomination is committed in Israel. And again, abomination is that whole, abomination is a really harsh word. It is something that is abhorred. You look at it and you basically pull away from it because it is so disgusting. And in our day, 
people don't recognize the abominations that are in front of their eyes so many times. I look at some of the, even some of the movie ads on TV and I'm going, why would anybody want to go see, just from the trailers, this movie that is an abomination and a desecration of everything that God stands for and, it's, and, and that's what they're using as their trailer to get people to see? People are feeding on things that are abominable in God's sight. And that shows how wicked our world has gotten. And he says this abomination has happened in Israel. And people are starting to flock to it. And then it says, And Jerusalem and Judah profane the holiness of God, the sanctity of God, holiness set aside. This is one of the things that is happening, you know, do we have time that we set aside for God as holy time with him? He's with us all the time, and we realize that. But there should also be that special time that I bring coming into his righteousness and his holiness in a very special way. I should always be trying to maintain that holiness and sanctity. But I, when I come to church, I look at it as a time to come before God and just spend time in front of him. There's times when I wish I wasn't the song leader because I would love to just concentrate on God more than having to concentrate on the words. And every once in a while, I'll forget to concentrate on the words and, and forget the words that I'm supposed to be leading. <laughs> but because I want to worship him during that time, I'm not looking so much at getting into the words. And we need this time where we are being righteous. And but what is this abomination that he speaks about particularly? He loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. Israel was married to God in, his, in the way he looked at them. He said, I'm your husband, you are my wife. And there was this jealousy and this idea that they were committing uh, prostitution and whoredom and adultery when they went after these gods. And you can picture how hurt God was with that decision that they would make. God, we're just going to go on and do our thing with other gods. <laughs> and, you know, and worse yet, gods that aren't even gods. <laughs> we're we're going to go worship this, this stone over here covered with gold, you know, this, this tree that's covered with gold. And I think it was in Isaiah where he talked about the funniness. You know, the man goes out, cuts down a tree, he cuts the log in half, he burns half of it to make dinner, and he makes, sets, nails up the other half and makes an idol out of it. Uh, and it just, you think about that and you're going, how can that happen? And yet, how often do we do the same thing in our own lives? It may not be going out and cutting down a tree, but what keeps us from serving God? This is important. What keeps us from serving God? For many people in America, it's going to be TV. You know, I'm just going to watch this one show, God. Five hours later, well, I better, guess I better go to bed. You know, sorry, God, I didn't have time to read the Bible today. And that's, and that's usually what we will say. Well, I just didn't have time yesterday to read my Bible. I got in my five hours worth of TV and, uh, or my movies on Netflix or my, my DVDs, but God, I just didn't have time for your, for your word. We've raised up an idol. For some people, it is sports. Especially in young families, they get their kids into sports and that, that team that the kids play on become an idol. If, it, if they're playing on Wednesday night instead of Bible study, they're going to be at the game. You know, the practices on that night, they're going to go to practice. If they're playing on Sunday morning, they've got to go to the game and not to church. And that team becomes an idol. What takes the place of God? What keeps us from getting into his word? What keeps us from having time with God's people? 
if whatever those things are, that's an idol that we've placed in front of God and say, God, this is more important to me than you. Does that mean we have to come to church on Sunday morning? No, if you don't come to church on Sunday morning, come Sunday night or Thursday or Wednesday, especially in our church, it's real easy. We meet five times a week. So if you can't make any one of those five times, you've got some problems, <laughs> especially when we, we scatter at different, at different times as well. But what keeps us from getting into God's word? What keeps us from spending time with God? We look at that, and if it's something that is keeping us all the time from it, we have an idol in our life, and that's, we're placing above God. And God's saying, you've married a strange idol. That's an abomination. We have so many people that have married into a strange, abominable idol, and it's an abomination before God. God hates it. Because we as a church are the bride of Christ. So we are doing the same thing. We're putting something else in place of Christ when we, when we don't do this. And this is that picture. And this is the seriousness of God as he looks at marriage. Because he says when we mistreat our spouse, especially men with their bride, then there's a huge problem in that. And he's going to go into the punishment of that and how it is a bad thing. But it is this picture of the damage done to the church in the relationship between Jesus and this church. And we look at Hosea. Hosea, I feel sorry for Hosea because he was told to go marry a prostitute who kept running off from him so that he could be a picture of God drawing her back, buying her back, buying her back. And he says, this is how God deals with us. We run off into prostitution with other gods, and God says, I'm going to buy you back. He draws us back, loves us, cleans us up, reinstates us, and then we run off again. And we see this over and over, and God calls it abomination. Verse 12 says, The Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an off offering unto the Lord of hosts. When somebody chooses to follow after an idol, God says he cuts him off. That means to destroy. Damage is going to come into that person's life. They're going to be judged. They're going to be built with, they're going to be left alone to that uh, idol. They're going to be cursed. They're going to be cut off from God. And it says, the master and the scholar. And this is the, the one who proclaims, the teacher. One who rouses, that's what a teacher is supposed to do, is rouse the spirit of somebody. And the scholar, the one who is listening in this case. He goes, both the master and the teacher will be cut off. If they're not, if they're not going to obey, God will cut off both. And in, in this case, the, the, this teacher is also going to have a responsibility because the scholar usually listens to their teacher. And if the teacher is not warning, the teacher gets wrong, he can lead many astray. And this is why James tells us many of you ought not to be teachers for their greater judgment in it. A teacher is responsible for other people's lives. And it's very important. And if you're called to be a teacher, you go be a teacher because it's important. But you also want to keep in mind, I am responsible for lives and what they learn and how they learn in some cases. And this is why teachers need to spend time in the Word, spend time with God, spend time in prayer. So when they stand up before, before their class or sit down in front of their class, whichever it might be, that they teach God's word. And, but this does not mean that the student is without responsibility. Paul praised the Bereans because they went and researched out what he said with the scriptures and, and, and looked to see if it's true. The, the student has a responsibility as well 
to go verify what they're taught. And that's very important for them to do, but the teacher has the greater responsibility. And he says, and to him that offers the Lord of the host, he's going to cut off even those that are offering if they're, if they're following after idols. Because he's going to say, you cannot have an idol and me too. Same thing that when you're married, you, you're not supposed to have a, the husband's not supposed to have a wife and a mistress, and the wife is not supposed to have a husband and a, and a, and a side lover. That's not the way the program is supposed to work when God says it, and God does not allow that himself. And he's saying here, you can't go off and worship me and another God. You're not, I won't allow it. He goes, if you want to go that way, I am not going to accept your offerings made to me. And this is what he's saying. Verse 13, and this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with crying, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore or receives it with goodwill at your hand. Yet you say, wherefore, because the Lord has been a witness between you and, your, and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant. And here God's saying, I don't care how much you weep and cry and lament. And the Jews were famous for this. You know, when, when it was sad times, they actually hired people that would do the weeping and lamenting and the wailing. And God says, I don't care how much you, you yell and weep and show that you're sorry, you're not acting it. Your actions aren't matching your quote-unquote repentance. And I don't care how much you, you weep and wail, God says, I'm not going to regard your offering when you are following after this other God. And this is something that's important. We cannot get into just doing the actions of a righteous person. And we've heard this, you know, in the early 40s, 50s, 60s, especially the church had this idea, I don't, I don't go to the movies, I don't drink, I don't dance, and I don't, you know, do all these different things. And that was supposed to be righteousness. And it was supposed to be godliness. But they'd go out and, and deal treacherously in their business dealings and, and lie to people if it met their needs. You know. But they had this list. I, I'm not playing cards. I'm not going to the movies. You know, I'm not going to the dances, God. I'm a really good person. You're supposed to like me. But I'm not being honest. I'm not being truthful. I'm not, you know, I've got my mistress on the side. You know, don't worry about her. You know, just, you know, I don't do these other things, God. And God says, I don't care about all of that. I care about your heart. And this is when Samuel came to Saul after the battle with the Amalek king that he didn't kill. And he kept some of the best, best uh, animals that he was supposed to kill. And Saul came to him and go, what have you done? He goes, well, I've been obedient to God. I did everything that God told me to do. Well, he was told to go kill the king and all of his people and all, of his, all the flocks. And yet he tried to justify to him. Well, I've done, I killed, I've killed most of the people and I've killed most of the flocks. And then when Samuel challenged him, his answer was, the people did this. <laughs> now, it wasn't me, it was the people. I didn't want to get in trouble with the people. They wanted to keep these good animals. And Solomon and Samuel said, you've been disobedient. God wants obedience more than he wants the sacrifice. And Samuel went and killed the king and the animals that were left because the obedience of God was to be followed. And God is looking for obedience rather than the outward experience. He wants to know that our heart is there. He makes us a new creation when we're saved. And he says, I've given you a new heart. 
taken out the stone heart, put a heart of flesh in there that has my laws written on it, and you can keep these laws if you would just not harden the heart. And he will be the one that helps us. And he says, I don't care about your wailing. I don't care about your, your, your screaming and crying and, and your looking like you're repenting. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, and you say, why? Why, God? Why aren't you paying attention to me? <laughs> How many times do we do that with God sometimes? God, why aren't you listening to me? And we know darn well why he's not listening to me because I've been de dealing with sin and living in sin and messing up my testimony, but yet we'll come to God. And the world is good for this. When bad things happen, they'll go, God, why does bad things happen to good people? You are just terrible. You are miserable. You know, I don't understand you, and you weren't following God in the first place. And yet you'll make your accusation to God as, as something he's done is wrong because he is not giving you what you think you should deserve. And the answer is because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and the wife of your covenant. So he's using this example. And remember the context is here is God and his bride. And he's saying because you have not honored your marriage vows. And he was talking to the men. You're going, you, know, you, you haven't even covered your own wives. You, you get, and if it's the right time period, they're marrying people that aren't Jews. They're marrying unequally yoked. They're, they're not keeping their promises with their wives because of the different things they're doing. And the, they're worshiping idols, which means they're going out and committing fornication and adultery with these idols because many of them were fertility gods and goddesses which could, had sexual activity with their worship and God saying you have not kept your vows you have not kept the covenant with your wife just as you have not kept the covenant with me is what he's saying and because of that I'm not going to pay attention he says did not he make one and that means join together yet had he the residue of the spirit and wherefore one that he might seek goodly seed Therefore, take heed to the Spirit and let none of you deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. God wants righteous families, righteous husband and wife, so that they will raise righteous children. And we see the result in our day and age of all the families where, in many cases, the kids don't even know who their father is because there's been so many men involved. And in some cases, the men, the men and the women are so busy getting their careers going that they leave their children to babysitters and, and whatever. And God's saying, I want you to raise children that fear me, that honor me. The whole purpose of marriage, and we see it right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. They were supposed to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they probably had the hardest time because they really didn't have any example of what a father and a mother were supposed to be. All of a sudden, you've got these crazy kids that are running around doing sinful things, and you're going, to, how do we discipline? How do we do this? You know, they had to probably have the hardest job of all parents in, in this. But, you know, it might be just as bad in this day and age because many of our families do not know what a parent is supposed to be. And this has been something I've always been concerned about. As my children start getting married, who do they get married to? Do they get married to somebody who has had some example of what a family really should be and we see so many people that have had multiple divorces and remarriages in their families we see so many families that have a single mom who's never been married she's just had several
dalliances with all these fornications and ended up getting pregnant and having kids without a father and brings in a father and he doesn't be a father to any of the kids because he's not their father and doesn't want to be. And we see all these problems and we see this problem of how do you raise your children? We have a world telling us that you don't spank your kids, you don't discipline your kids because if you do, you're, you're committing child abuse. And then they want to turn around and hold you accountable when your kids do bad things, even though they told you you couldn't discipline them to keep them from doing bad things. And this is why we have this big problem and this is why we need to get a biblical worldview. God, you say this is what a father is. God, you say this is what a mother is. This is what a wife is. This is what a husband is. This is how we discipline our family. This is how we build them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The church is the place that has the answers because we preach the word of God as long as it's a Bible-preaching church. And this is why I will always make sure that we're a, a Bible-preaching church, that we're going to lift up the Bible, we're going to teach the Bible. Whether it's popular or not popular, we're going to teach the Bible and lift it up because it's God's word. It is true. And God says, don't deal treacherously. Honor, in this case, he's talking about the wife. And we look at this in 1 Peter 3.17. It says, husbands, are your prayers not being answered? How are you treating your wife? And this is God's seriousness on it. If we don't treat our fleshly partner well, how can we even begin to look at the spiritual world and try to treat God well? And this is why he puts us in a situation and say, I want you to show my love to the people on the, that are around you. And with your husband and wife, it should be easy. You chose to love them. <laughs> that should be an easy one to love. The kids should be easy because they're part of you. Now, it gets harder when you start expanding it into your church family, your extended family where people have been brought in through through marriage that you didn't have any choice in, your, your neighbors, and God says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's telling us we need to be able to show his love to those around us. And that's where things get very difficult sometimes, to be able to show that love to others. Verse 16 says, for the Lord your God, for the Lord the God of Israel says that he hates putting away, for one covers covers with violence his garment and the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously, putting away, separating, divorcing. God does not divorce us. I can't remember where it was, but God says to the people, where is the bill of divorcement? I have not divorced you. You're going after these other gods and goddesses. I haven't divorced you. Where, you know, why are you going after them? You're dealing treacherously. Here he's saying he hates that putting off. He hates divorce. And we're told that in other places. He hates divorce. Why? Because it tears lives apart. And it tears, the, tears our spirit apart when we divorce ourselves from God even temporarily. Because we bring in all of this evil. And he says one is covered with violence is what it talks about. And it's just, you know, when it, in Hebrew, this is literally talking about they're covered with violence. And we see this in our day that there are a lot of people that are covered with violence. Whether it's a passive-aggressive violence that, that seems to not hurt anybody, but it hits at the emotional and spiritual level, to an active, violent person who does real damage and real pain to people. And God is saying, don't be covered with violence. He wants his love to shine forth out of us. And his love is what shows us as being his disciples. 
He loved us and he first loved us and we come to him and love him. Because of his love for us, we are to love one another. And as we love one another, we draw people into the kingdom. Because a lot of times that's the only kind thing that people see is that this person loved me. I don't know why they loved me, but they loved me. Knowing that they don't deserve it, knowing that most people don't love them, and then we as a Christian come along and just show them God's love. And they go, why? And I go, because God loves you. Very powerful way to talk to people is that God loves you. Because a lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people don't believe that God loves them, and they need to see us showing them God's love for them to begin to understand that God loves them. And it is not easy to love people. You know, people get on our nerves. People get us mad. People know what buttons to push to make us get mad. And then when we still need to just show love because it is God who's loving them through us. He's the one that gives us the capacity to love. And when I was reading the cross and the switchblade, it's about the, this pastor that goes out and he talks to the, this big gang leader and he goes, I love you. And he goes, well, I'm going to cut you up into, I think it was 150 pieces or something. And the, and the pastor goes, and every piece will say, God loves you. And he just walked away. He couldn't handle that type of love. And he didn't believe that it was there. But it was a great message, a great message you know, to him. Wilkerson said, God loves you. And he goes, and even if you damn it, you know, cut me up, I'm, every piece is going to say, God loves you. And this touched him. It helped start changing his life. Did he want to be hurt? No. Did, but he also wanted to say, I love you so much, I don't care what you're going to do because God still loves you. And this is where we want to, want to be. God loves us. And he says, take heed to your spirit. Guard your spirit so you don't deal treacherously. Take heed. We need to guard our life. Guard our thoughts and make sure that they are biblical. That we have a biblical worldview. That when God steps out and says, I want you to do something. And it's oftentimes very hard. I want you to show kindness to this person who's despitefully using you. I want you to be kind to this person who's, who you, every being in your, every fiber in your body wants to hate. And God says, love them and be kind to them. And that's hard. But it takes that guarding of our heart, the guarding of our spirit. I'm going to fill it with your word, God. I'm going to fill it with your love, your kindness, God, so that you will come out. Verse 17 says, you have wearied me, wearied the Lord with your words. You know, they've exhausted God. Yet you say, wherein have we worried him? And this is the pattern that Micah uses all the time. He says something, the people says, no, we haven't done that. And then he says, everyone that does evil, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in him. Or where is the God of judgment? Oh, where, when you say, Everyone that do is, does good, evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delights in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? These are the same words we're hearing from the crowd right now. God, is, it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. Good is evil, evil is good. God doesn't care, he still loves them. And this is why when we say that God loves them, we need to be careful that people don't treat that with God is allowing you to do whatever you, you feel like doing. Because God does love them. He died for them, but he's still going to send them to hell if they don't turn to him. And God is saying, when you say that evil is good and that God doesn't care, you are wearying God. And this is why we have to be able to share with people, sin 
is sin. And if that means people aren't going to be around listening, then that is between them and God. I already know that there are people that, probably, that won't come to this church because I will call sin a sin. I know that. I can't stop calling sin a sin, though, because God calls it a sin. If they don't like it, that's between them and God, but they're going to hear a consistency from me that God says there are sins. We're going to hold on tight to that, no matter what the world tells us is okay or not okay. When, God, when, when the world says we can murder billions of babies because the, parent, the mother doesn't want them, that is a sin. It is killing that infant. God knows that infant in the, in the womb. That is murder. When, he's, when they come along and say, you've got to accept homosexual relationships, God says it's a sin. We're not going to accept it. If they want to come to church, that's fine, but they're going to hear that their lifestyle is a sin. They're going to hear. When we have people gossiping, they're going to hear that God calls gossip a sin. When, we hear, when they come in and they're spending a lot of time spending, lying and they have a problem with lying, they're going to hear lying is a sin. They're going to hear that drunkenness is a sin. They're going to hear that one night stands and, and hookups and living together outside the bounds of marriage is fornication and it's a sin. They're going to hear that having a, a relationship outside of the bounds of your marriage is adultery and it's a sin. We can name off all these sins, but people commit sins and we're going to be calling them sin because God calls them sin. We're not going to soften that view. Sin is sin, but Jesus died for our sins. He died so that we could be forgiven. He died so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and stand before God in the righteousness of Christ and be accepted. Even though we're going to call sin a sin, we're also going to say Jesus died for those sins. Come to him. Turn to him. Admit that you're a sinner. Reject that sin. Turn to God. Repent by turning to God and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He will forgive those sins and give you a new life. Because God says it's a sin. You're wearying him by saying it's okay. And there are lots of pastors, lots of churches, lots of religions that say it's okay. God is still going to accept you, and that is a lie. If we live, die in our sins, he will, we will be rejected, and God will judge. He will say it is done. You've had too much. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you... Tell the leaders that they're responsibility, responsible for wearying you and challenge to, the, to, to rulers and leaders to live forward. But also, Lord, you show that marriage is so important because it is the picture of who you are and how you relate to your people. Help us to live in lives that lift you up and honor you. Keep crucifying our flesh. Keep helping us learn to change in, because of the way your spirit changes us from the inside out. In your son's name, amen.